Welcome to The Classical Mind, a podcast about the great books in the Western canon. I am your host for today, Father Wesley Walker, and today I'm joined by Kristen Rudd. Kristen is a writer and literature teacher who teaches her own classes online, serves an, as an adjunct professor for Thales College, and teaches the um, and teaches some other classes for um, groups like Circe Institute. She holds a Master of Arts in Teaching and Classical Education through the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University, where she wrote her thesis on Dante's Divine Comedy. She's also the founder of a really cool organization called the Triangle Classical Forum, which hosts speakers and book discussions and all sorts of cool stuff uh, down in the Raleigh, North Carolina area. So if you're ever down there, be sure to check in there. Kristen, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, this is going to be a lot of fun and a little different for what, from what we normally do here at The Classical Mind. Um, but before we get into our topic for today, which is monsters, uh, I was just curious, what, are you, what have you been up to lately? Oh, well, I am. I do. I, I take a break during the spring. I do a two, two breaks. So I teach for six weeks and take a break and then teach for six weeks and take a break. So this is my break week. So I'm doing a little bit of everything. <laughs> um, I've been teaching my classes. Um, I'm, I'm teaching a, this class on monsters currently for high school students. Um, and I, I teach a class on the Divine Comedy. Um, I'm also upcoming, I'll be speaking at the Circe Regional Conference in March. Not sure when this podcast will go live, but um, I'll be one of the speakers for that at, at Thales College here in uh, Wake Forest. And I'll be doing a webinar for Circe on Dante. So we just always have lots of projects. Yes. And cooking in the background. Yes, you definitely uh, stay busy. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> now, in all your busyness, uh, what have you been reading lately? Ah, so my monsters class just finished Beowulf, so I've been kind of heavy diving into Beowulf, and I've got a couple of books working. Uh, I've been reading, I think it's Stephen Asma on monsters, hmm. uh, which is really good so far, and then. Uh, I can see it in my bag over there. Um, Landscape with Dragons, I think it's called. There's a book on um, children's literature and, and you know, the good and the bad in that. That's been really interesting. And then um, my Dante class, we're currently in Purgatorio, so I've been reading that. But the craziest thing I have read recently, this is totally unrelated to our conversation, but I run a book club at my church, you know, because I have to stay busy. And we just read The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. Oh, yeah. And I had never read it before. And that book is bonkers, like bonkers. It was oh, amazing. <laughs> that's fantastic. I love that. So you've alluded to it, uh, and I mentioned that this is our topic for today. We're talking about monsters. Um, and the reason yes. for that is that you are teaching this class now for high school students. But is it my understanding that you're going to teach it again in the summer, but it'll be for adults? Yes. So, um, I've had this class on my syllabus for the year. It's just a spring semester course, so it's not a full year course. And got you know a few students. It's it's going well, but a lot of people expressed regret that they couldn't take the class. <laughs> a lot of friends and things. And so I decided to offer a summer course for adults and teenagers if they'd like to join. Absolutely welcome to do a little bit of an abbreviated course on some of these monster stories. So we won't cover quite as many things as the full semester class does. But it's an eight week. Uh, sorry, it's a twelve week class covering some of the texts that we're covering in the monsters course and we use texts from you know the ancient greeks through modern stories so it's kind of an overview of the progression of how we view monsters throughout history and in, in literature that's excellent that's excellent so i thought we could 
maybe step back and talk about some general questions about monsters, then these, these are some topics that have come up among our classical mind listeners and some of our conversations and, and in some of the books that we've read, uh, the topic of monsters has come up. And so I thought it would be fun to talk with you a little bit, pick your brain about what monsters are and why they're important. So perhaps we could start by simply defining our term. Uh, what is a monster? So that's a really interesting question. Like it's way more complicated than you'd think. It is. It is. And I'm hesitant to give an answer because one of the really fun things about the class is the, the one I'm in currently is watching the students continue to grapple with that question. So as we read every story that we read, they kind of redefine and reevaluate what they believe a monster is and how different cultures and different stories portray what monsters are and how we're supposed to, to understand and read them. And I was going back through the discussion boards because uh, I knew we were going to talk about this. And my students have classified monsters. They have a whole like medieval classification system going. Um, they've divided monsters. This is from like the first week or two of class into four different categories. And then they've subdivided them. So they, they've identified at least kind of two main categories. And then from there kind of created more. But there's an idea that there is one type of monster that is completely evil irredeemable monster. It is evil incarnate and should be destroyed, right? So, you know, Grendel kind of falls into this category. Dragons would fall into this category. Aliens. But then there's other types of a aliens, yes. Which, well, that's, I guess it depends, <laughs> you know? I mean, the aliens um, from the, the film franchise, Aliens. Oh, from that film. Well, yeah, and I think whether or not something can be redeemed is an interesting question. Right. And whether or not you believe something is truly evil, you know, in a society that increasingly doesn't believe in evil at all, then, you know, it raises a lot of really good questions. So they, they've kind of categorized this one broader category as the evil. And then they subdivided that into just like monsters that have no reason. Hmm. And so they're just beasts, just absolute beasts. And then monsters that are evil, but have reason, but are still irredeemable. So, you know, it's interesting to see them kind of create these other, other, categories for it and then the redeemable monsters interesting and so one of the first stories we read in the class with the students was beauty and the beast mm, sure and you know it's you know it's hard i think for us to separate the disney movie version from the the fairy tale the original fairy tale but the idea that beast you know they, they even questioned whether he was a monster or if he was just a monster on the outside. And so the idea that a monster could be redeemable, could be saved, is a really fascinating um, idea. And then they had like another category kind of, um, they're not really evil, they're just they're just such beasts. Um, like Godzilla. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, just, right, right. So, you know, so they've been, they've been, they've been refining these as we go. And so it's been really fun to watch them come up with this definition. But that's one of the points of the class is to read these stories and say, okay, so what does this story say about what it means to be monstrous or to be a monster? And how does the, the culture involved play into that? And how does that change and shift? And what should we do with that? So it's one of the big joys of the class. That's helpful, uh, the, those kind of preliminary definitions. I was wondering if maybe we could explore the difference between a villain and a monster. And you've already alluded to this slightly because if the characters are redeemable or whatever, but but obviously not all villains are monsters and perhaps vice versa. So what is it that sets those two things apart? 
Yeah, I'm not sure that I would, I know right now, like off the top of my head. Um, I think I'm so steeped in monsters as villains that it's hard to think of a villain who's not monstrous. At, at least if not, if he was, then is, you know, redeemed. I, Darth Vader, you know, is like the first one to come to mind, quite honestly. So it seems very monstrous throughout, right? But then is redeemed in the end. So is he a monster? Or was he, you know, do monsters that, you know, as part of the definition, do they have to stay monsters? Sure, sure. And I suppose it does, um, it does tie very closely to our definition of monster. And I think we're, we're going to talk about this in a minute or two, but I think there is a sort of social aspect to what is a monster insofar as monster tends to be other or outside of uh, social yes. norms. And so, um, for that reason, I think that it's, I, I think there has to be a distinction between villain and monster because monster can really refer to almost anyone who's pushed outside of those social norms. That doesn't necessarily mean they have a bad intent necessarily, though often those two things do kind of overlap, I guess, in, in literature. Yeah, I was I was reading in Asma's book this morning, and I, it's not a direct quote, but uh, he had this really great point where he was making, I think he was talking about Frankenstein and said, um, it used to be that monsters were outside, you know, the community because they were evil. Mm -hmm. And now monsters are evil because they're outside the community. Right. You and get so, that. You know, that, that's been a shift in, in our idea of understanding you know, and wanting, almost wanting to make monsters relatable, mm -hmm. like the idea of, of, you know, relatability. And I think there's value in, in having them be both completely evil and unrelatable. There's good, there's good in that, like, especially for children, right? So fairy tales, we want things to be very clearly good and very clearly evil. But then as we grow and we get older, and, you know, as what Solzhenitsyn says, the dividing line between good and evil runs through every heart. Right. And so, you know, I think the ability to see our capacity for evil and our capacity to be a monster, you know, that's, a frightening prospect um and so recognizing that we're all capable of monstrous things and how do we fight against that i think i think some of that shifts how we view monsters and our, our and then i think our lack of desire to recognize anything as evil we we make yeah. evil the byproduct of the outcast status rather than the other way around sure sure that this uh, actually came up uh, for me while reading beowulf uh, for the podcast mm -hmm. Uh, a year or two ago because i think it was when um there's that scene where he grendel is sort of outside looking in and he and you get the idea he sort of is hating what he's seeing but one yes. wonders you know did he already hate it or is it because he's on the outside that he's hating it and i don't know it was an interesting it was an interesting question um in my mind and it kind of raised the question to me of of well what is it that the author is identifying here you know like what are they inching into and it's it's hard with beowulf just because it's you know origins are so fuzzy um but anyways but it definitely it definitely caught, got me thinking on this topic now since you do you kind of run the gambit here in terms of looking at monsters throughout the throughout the centuries throughout different eras of literature different social contexts what is it that makes some of these monsters endure you know, I mean, they're just some so iconic yeah. and they might be ancient and they might be old, but we just, uh, you know, the Minotaur, for example. I mean, we all know who the Minotaur is and it's the, from this, you know, ancient mythology. So what what what, what makes them enduring? 
I mean, who doesn't love a dragon, right? Like, True. well, and you know, dragons. Since I mentioned, you know, they're they're in every culture. Yeah, kind of like if, a pancake. If Junius were here, he would have a lot to say about this. I'm sure. I know. I just I thought of him too. Um, I think what makes them enduring is is what any monster does. Is it's they are so other capital O other that they help us feel better about ourselves. Yeah. Like, you know, that there's something we can, we can sit and look in them like a mirror and say that I'm not that, you know, thank God I'm not that, but there's the still little voice in back in the back of our heads that am I right. And so I think the more, you know, crazy, the monster, you know, dragon, the Minotaur, Grendel, the, easier it is for us to say oh i'm not that that is true i guess um in some ways the definition of monster seems to always be tied to our understanding of hero because heroes need to be j defined over and against some sort of monster at least yes. often so yes yeah i mean the, the Ch chesterton quote about children know you know the bogey exists because they've been familiar with the dragon since they were born, right? Mm. And that it's a fairy tale is it, it always gets misquoted. Always, the Gaiman quote always gets mixed up in there. But Chesterton's point is that fairy tales don't just tell you that dragons can be killed. That's not his quote. His quote is the fairy tale provides a St. George to kill the dragon. That's right. And so the fairy tale provides a hero that you, you can't kill a monster without a hero. And one of the things that I love about that, you know, as a Christian is you can't save yourself. You can't rescue yourself. So you need to be redeemed by an outside source. And so what the hero provides for us is that outside source to redeem and to save us. Mm. That's helpful. And I love St. George. He's my patron saint, actually. He is. He is one of my favorites. Yes. Yeah, he's awesome. So, yeah. So I think that's that's helpful. So the thing that, that makes them endure is that they... Uh, simultaneously comfort us and in some ways discomfort us uh they show us who we are uh, but they also what we could be and uh that can be a uh, scary i guess that's why we we depict them in such horrifying ways they often embody cultural anxieties i mean it's very rare i think that you would have a a monster or perhaps we should say one of the enduring features of monsters is that they can play on a sort of collective anxiety, right? So it's not just my personal projection in a vacuum, but rather uh, a, a good terrifying monster will speak to some sort of fear in a collective group because that would, would give it more resonance. Um, does their depiction, and I guess we've talked about this a little, but it might be helpful to draw this out. Does, does the way we depict monsters then uh, is it more about what's out there or is it more about what's in here? Yes. <laughs> exactly. It's both. I mean, you, you talk about, you know, the monsters being enculturated. So I was thinking about like the Salem witch hunts, right? Like that's, that's a societal fear, you know, it's a societal fear. And, you know, even Grendel, you know, being outside the camp in a sense, um, it reflects back on this, you know, this, this, force that is against all of what's good that's against you know the hall right the meat hall as the a symbol of kingship and authority and culture and you know belonging and so to destroy that is to destroy the culture and so you know like think about the witch hunts which is not 
there's a lot of literature written about it, but as a historical event, you know, we create monsters to help us understand both, yeah, that other and who we are. I think it works both ways. Mm. You know, as you were just talking about that particular example, it made me think of the film The Witch uh, that came out recently. I don't know, but not recently. It's been it's been a while. Have you seen this? No, I've not. Okay, it's very good. It is one of the most unsettling films I've ever seen. Um, but what's interesting about it, and I think to go back to this idea of collective anxiety, is that it's it's a telling of of that kind of colonial era witch story for a modern audience. Mm-hmm. And so there aren't jump scares. There's not really a lot of, uh, you know, it's not going to make you really jump out of your seat. But the but the sort of culmination of the film is the main character uh, talking to a goat that she thinks might be possessed. And the goat talks back. And that is, I think, it plays on our collective anxiety because we live in a sort of secularizing world in which we've we've sort of dismissed you know, evil, like you said, and certainly spirituality, spiritual realities. And, uh, and so the film kind of confronts us with the question, well, what if it's real, you know? Um, and so that makes it very terrifying. But I think again, showing us it's more about what's going on here, though, certainly it's related to what's out there as well. It's very interesting. And so we see that, that monsters are often projections, um, of ourselves or others. Um, and we use that term, the other. Can we talk a little bit about how monsters can teach us about the dynamics of inclusion and inclusion? You said it used to be they're excluded because they're evil, but now they're evil because they're excluded. Um, what is the shift there? I mean, I think Frankenstein's a good marker for that. Um, you know, and Shelley's story is interesting because, you know, she did revise it so much, you know, from, from the 1818 text. But, you know, Frankenstein is is an other, but is he made a monster because he's created as one or is he made a monster because he's been rejected by society and he's not able to be included? But, and I think that's an interesting idea. Like, do we have less sympathy for a monster who's just evil and is excluded because of that just baseness? And it's easier to have sympathy for a monster who is evil because of that exclusion. And there's this idea almost, I think, and even, even on our secular society that well, we can fix it. We mm-hmm. can bring it back into the fold. And you know, this is a little, maybe, I don't know if this is a rabbit trail, but as I was mentioning witches, I was thinking about the idea that we've taken these monsters, one thing that is very common in our culture, my students have been really grappling with this, is we've taken these monsters, these depictions of, of evil, say a witch, right? Witches are evil, that's what fairy tales teach us. And we've turned them into these good things. It's like we have Harry Potter, I don't want to get into a Harry Potter debate. My my family's read them. We love Harry Potter. We love the movies. We love the books. But we've taken this idea of evil and made it relatable and sympathetic and something that we root for. Um, How to Train Your Dragon, right? Those books and the movies. Um, We've taken this symbol of evil, the dragon, this destructive symbol, and we've made it something that we can tame. You know, or Monsters, Inc., right? Monsters Under the Bed right? They're just going about their daily lives doing their work just like the rest of us, right? We've taken all of these symbols of evil and we've flipped them and made them into something good. And one of the things we've been discussing is, is that a good thing? Should we be concerned about that? And if so, why? And if not, why not? So the idea of, you know, outcast and inclusion, I think it comes down to maybe 
how you view the world and how you view nature mm. and reality. And I don't know that I have a good answer for it. Um, cause we are born into the context we're in. Right. And so, but I think it raises some really good questions and some good things to grapple with and to discuss. And you know, that's one of the things that we get to do in this course is talk about those things. So. That is interesting. The witchcraft example is really interesting because I think you, I mean, not only a story like Harry Potter, I think, um, you just go to Barnes and Noble and you go get in like the spirituality aisle and it's full of sort of witchcraft stuff, you know, and it is, it is very interesting. In fact, a lot of this conversation is reminding me of a, of an, of a, in addition of the hedgehog review that came out a few years ago, they did one on monsters and there was a whole article in it about the sort of pop culture co-option of witchcraft. And how it has become sort of a uh, almost like a positive thinking sort of self-affirmation way of being, um, which is, I think, radically different than than a lot of things that have come before. And so, yeah, you do get this kind of flipping. Um, I, some of it feels and it is, like and it's Christian. culturally based. It is culturally because based. Like, and, you know, in Chinese culture, in their stories, dragons are good. Right. And sure. so a lot of it is culturally based. But in the Western culture, dragons are bad traditionally. So. It it's I feel a little conflicted on the topic, and let me explain why. Oh no! <laughs> that on the one hand, especially from a Christian perspective, there is good, and then there's a lack of good, and that's certainly true. And and we we should be able to I think say that pretty without blushing. On the other hand, the the emphasis on inclusion and the emphasis on empathy and the trying to understand uh, where the monster comes from, these kind of questions, which have become more common, I think, in, in modern stories with monsters, uh, strikes me as a, as a, maybe a, um, maybe a hollowed out or maybe a disenchanted Christian impulse. You know, the idea of redemption being, um, being accessible. Um, I, and the idea that that exclusion may be may play a role in that, I it's I'm torn if that makes sense. That I, I I think our culture would never acknowledge it as a Christian impulse, but I think that's where it comes from. No, and yeah, and I'm thinking, you know, I think one of our hesitations in calling something evil is, who are we to say that someone or something is beyond redemption? And that that's a fair assessment, right? Like it's not up to us to to judge the way that God judges, right? It's not up to us to condemn soul right that's one person gets that job and and he's god <laughs> so i think there's a hesitancy in wanting to say something is evil because who are we to say that um, but one of my students actually wrote in the discussion board this week this great little quote i wanted to share it um they were talking about you know evil and you know you know is grendel evil or is, is he just you know misunderstood and uh she said that um sometimes the villain of a story is just the villain rather than representing a complex human, which is what we would be, it represents the embodiment of that cosmic evil. These sorts of villains or monsters, I don't think ought to be intentionally made sympathetic as pure evil is not and should not be sympathetic. And then she said this, and I love this, evil should be fought, not excused with a tragic backstory. Mm. And I think there's a hesitation from our culture, you know, that kind of, you know, you, you can do whatever you want as long as you're not harming anyone. It's very accepting, accepting culture that we live in and the Christian view of, you know, we're, none of us are beyond redemption, right? We can all be saved, um, coupled with the idea that there is real evil in the world. So how do you identify it and name it? 
you know, that that's what some of the monstrous is. And it's so funny to watch my students like be very hesitant to categorize too many of the monsters as that true evil, wanting to come up with that tragic backstory. Um, but I think one of the things we need to remember is that while we can't judge to condemn any other person, we do have to judge, we have to make good judgments, we have to assess, um, you know, decision making is judgment, right? So in that sense, um, not in a con condemning kind of way, but if something is evil, we should say that it's evil. And I think one of the things that monster stories help us do is recognize evil when we see it mm. and understand the complication of, you know, being people who have the capacity for both good and evil, but being able to recognize it and acknowledge it and point it out and say that that's monstrous. Perhaps, uh, yes, I think I, that's a, a super, a, a super helpful way of, of, sifting through some of those uh sometimes seemingly contradictory impulses um and i think that first and foremost these stories can be so helpful yes because they can help us recognize evil out there in the world where it certainly is but perhaps even more is that kind of internal or reflective move of that story is about an impulse that lives in here. It's about me. Just like I think this, I often encourage people in the, you know, in the, in the scriptures that the passage is about judgment. First and foremost, read those about yourself. <laughs> That's about you, not about someone else. It's like Kierkegaard says, you know, I'm sure you all will be saved. It's me. I'm worried about, you know, and I think that there's something to that approach. And so these stories are great because they, they can prevent me from becoming a monster. Yeah, and what's interesting is when you know, as I've chosen stories, and I've, I'm, I may not make exactly the same choices for the summer course. I may tweak it a little bit, but we start off with kind of very clear monsters, you know, like Medusa, the Cyclops, the Minotaur, Grendel, dragons, and then we move into things where it gets more ambiguous, and we move into the realm of human, hmm. you know, Frankenstein. Um, we, we I, I like to cover different monsters, so in, it's too long for the summer course, but we're doing Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Like, who's not afraid of monsters in the deep, right? We're doing War of the Worlds, you know, the monsters, aliens, like so all the different kinds of categories. We're doing a bunch of short stories and we, we get into some Poe and O'Connor and a few other short stories like that where the monster is the man. Mm -hmm. You know, we encounter men who are monsters. And I'm very curious to see how it's gonna go, you know, toward the end of the semester as we we move from what's very clearly the other, because it's not humanoid, to men who are monsters. And what do we do with that? And it seems like the more modern stories are about the monstrous man. But we love we love our Godzilla movies, right? We love our shark movies, like we love our alien movies. So Yeah, yeah. No. Uh and in some ways, uh perhaps that's why these are uh, the, the stories where humans are the monsters can be the more unsettling. Um, precisely because that mirror becomes clearer, there's a little bit less of a distinction between that inhuman thing and me um we're, we're reading right now with my oldest son we've been reading the magician's nephew you know and 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 the way that lewis describes uncle andrew at times you know his face becomes contorted or he gets the this kind of almost demonic smile you know as he's waxing eloquent about how the rules don't apply to him because he's a genius you know and and so it's and that's very terrifying uh in a way that mm -hmm. you know uh, i can kind of just enjoy a, a nice alien movie or War of the Worlds or whatever. So yeah, oh. it's funny. Um, we, well, 
on our book club, we read Ender's Game in January. Oh. Right. And, you know, so Ender's Game is, you know, the classic sci-fi novel, Morrison Scott Card, 1977. Um, you know, they're fighting the buggers, right? The alien. And they're preparing for the third alien invasion. So they're going to defeat them once and for all. Um, and so if you haven't read that, you know, maybe skip ahead a little bit in the podcast. But um, they defeat the aliens only to, and then Ender realizes he doesn't even see them as monsters anymore. Mm-hmm. He simply ends up sympathizing with them. And, you know, so there's some interesting interplay there. Um, are we the other? Are we the monster for having destroyed them? So the uh, short story of dividing line. The short story of I Am Legend is that way as well. Not the film, but the but the short story. He kind of realizes at the end that he's been the one who has been the monster and not the actual, not the not who we thought were the monsters. And you you also see this, I think, in um in uh, that show on Netflix, Black Mirror. There's a whole uh, episode where soldiers have certain implants where they see this group of people that they're supposed to exterminate as inhuman others, but actually once the the technology malfunctions you realize they're actually just humans you know and so it certainly is yeah yeah and then i mean you look at heroes and you know my students do not like some of these greek heroes mm. <laughs> they're not fans um because they don't embody christian ethics and christian virtue right um you know they're proud and they're arrogant and you know they're conceited but you know for for that culture those were the, those were the values and the norms for a hero and there's almost an idea that a hero in many contexts, almost needs to be slightly monstrous himself. You know, the hair of the dog that bit you kind of thing, right? Like, if you can't, if you're not a little monstrous, can you defeat the monster? And when you look at the ancient stories, you know, you see that, and the, the Christian story then flips that script on its head because, you know, the ultimate monster, which is death and destruction, is defeated not through, um, you know, pride or arrogance, it's defeated through death, it's mm-hmm. defeated through suffering. And so the Christian idea of the hero flips, flips that pagan idea on its head and turns from this, you know, bravado, this pride into this humility. Mm. And so we're, we're dealing with trying to look at these stories through that lens. And it's really hard, especially to get teenagers out of that lens to like read, you know, a Greek heroic epic or a Greek play like a Greek and not a Christian, you know. I think that's one of the reasons why Batman has been a rather uh, symbolic hero is there's always that inner tension with him of realizing he could very easily become the thing he's fighting against. Um, right. And, 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 and very conscious struggle against that. It's why he won't cross certain lines and he, he has a sort of internal code of ethics that has to stay consistent. And I guess that's also the, the point of a story like Dune too, right? That, that the, um, what happens when the heroes win is sort of the question it asks. And uh, I couldn't get into Dune. I've read the first book and uh, I don't think it's for me. So my daughter loves it. Um, I'm not a big but, fan. Know, I, I, and this is, this is going to, I don't know if this gets off topic, but um, you know, Dexter, that TV show, right. Mm-hmm. About the man who is a serial killer, right. He's the hero in that show. Like right. you root for the serial killer. You know, so there's this really interesting juxtapositional play. Like this man is a monster and he embodies the monsters too. And he, you know, his code is that he only kills killers. But there's this really, you know, crazy interplay. And we root for this because we want those other killers to be punished, but not him. It's just, you know, it's bizarre. It's very dark. But, you know, that, that idea of, you know, to become the monster I don't know. He'd be an anti-hero and say he's a hero, but, but that, we have well, that now is, these kinds of stories. 
that is an interesting kind of I, I I feel like it's it's related to this conversation, uh, but that category of anti-hero and how they would fit in certainly certainly marks I think a, a cultural blurring of lines, but I, I still think there might be something there in a maybe a more positive way that kind of maybe an anti-hero does some of what we're talking about here, which is they do they do kind of recognize who they are and then uh, are trying at least to, to do something um, like a Dexter or um, I don't know. Did you ever see that show? Barry, he's kind of, it's kind of similar. He's a, he's a no. assassin who wants to become an actor. <laughs> it's Bill Hader. It's a great show, but anyways. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then why, um, as you're designing a course like this and creating objectives and and even just in the sort of pitch uh, that you would make to someone as to why they should take the class, why would what are some of the important reasons for us, whether it's young adults who are high school students or lifelong learners, as to why they should study monsters? Well, I mean, you should read really good books, so, you know. Reason number one. Um, We're on board with that at this podcast. Yes. I just feel like one of the most important questions we can be asking is, what does it mean to be human? And it's a question that we should constantly be asking, what does it mean to be human? And when we read great stories and we read great books, or even not great stories, honestly, we learn a little bit more about what, what that means. And so to understand that monster stories are, I think, a really great way and a really great genre of story to look at to help get at that question. Uh, and as as an adult, you know, the idea of that, we've, that we've talked about quite a bit is, you know, where's that dividing line within my heart? Where are my monsters? I get teased because um, my son graduated high school last year and he had never read Where the Red Fern Grows. And so I handed it to him and I said, this is a book about a boy who's two dogs. You'll love it. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, put this on social media and everyone was like, you're a monster. <laughs> and I thought it was so funny because um, I was like, keep people updated about where he was at in the book. <laughs> you know, and he was kind of on to me. He was like, it's going to end badly, isn't it? Um, yeah. But I get called a wonderful person and also a monster. <laughs> so I think about this a lot. That monsters, they help us see who we are. And that we, we are fascinated with them. We are absolutely, as, as a culture, every culture, fascinated with monsters. Every culture has their own monsters. And so there's something about it that's, that's compelling to us as humans. Mm. Uh, one of my favorite genre of movies is like B-grade shark movies. Love them. Absolutely I, love them. Thank you. Yes, me too. I mean, the worse they are, the better, in my yep. opinion. But these are just, you know, these mindless, brainless monsters that, you know, these people have to defeat and overcome. And so there's, there's it, something about monster stories provides a testament to the power of the human spirit and the power of the hero and the power of our ability to overcome evil. Even if, even if we don't recognize it as evil, we still do it. Because when you look at all, even the flip stories, you know, we're still rooting to overcome that evil. You know, I, I there's this little, um, I think it's Brigham Young University's animation department did this little like eight minute clip called um, Grendel. Um, and it's a little, it's beautiful, beautiful animation, but it, it follows Grendel as a monster. And, you know, the, the Danes come and they build their hall and um, they're the monsters. They're the ones always attacking him. But then a dragon comes and attacks the hall. So even though they've made Grendel like the sympathetic main character, he still battles evil. And so even within the flip stories, they're still battling evil. Yeah. 
um, so any, even any, you know, flipped fairy tale, there's still, you know, I tell my students, every story is always about love. And so whenever I ask them, so what's the story about? They're always like, love. So, you know, the power of the human spirit, the power of redemption, the power of salvation, the power of, uh, transformation are all at the root of monster stories and any other story. Um, they're such a part of our, our culture that they're great to read and discuss and learn about what it means to be who we are and where we fit in this big, beautiful world. Yes, yes. So with that in mind, then, if people want to sign up for your class, where can and should they do that? Yes. So um, it's a 12-week course. It begins, I think, in late May and goes through August. Um, you can go to kristenrudd.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-E-N-R-U-D-D.com. And go to the section on classes and the sign up for the summer monster courses there. It's open to adults and teenagers. And if a high school student wanted to take it and get like a semester credit for a lit class, um, just let me know and I can make sure that they can get an appropriate level of work for a full course. Um, I also have uh, my classes for the next school year up. I'm still getting a couple of those up and I'm doing Dante next year and I'll be teaching um, an ancient and medieval philosophy course as well. And then um, I also do college coaching. And so um, I have the classical co classicalcollegecoach.com if you're interested in parents who are interested in college coaching for their student. And that's the other other stuff that I do there. So that's kind of where... When you say college coaching, you mean like preparing are. for college or um, is yes. it like entrance essays or what is what is the focus there? Yeah. So I help students um, prepare for the um, the CLT, the classical learning test. And uh, we write, we do a lot of college essay classes and then just coaching, deciding where they want to go, what's a good fit, um, how do you do all of this and still maintain your sanity and rest and enjoy the good life now without it eating your soul. Excellent. Very important. Very important. Well, I would be remiss, I think, if I didn't ask you one last question, which is who is your favorite monster in literature or film? I think that would be acceptable to expand it to film. Ooh, or film. Or maybe you could do one of each. Okay. Um, so the Minotaur is my favorite monster. Okay. Uh, I love the Minotaur. It's my favorite Greek myth. Um, so that, that would be my favorite monster. I want to say probably in film, I think I've just off the top of my head, I'm going to have to go with Godzilla. Okay. I think mostly because uh, several years ago, when, when one of the, one of the more recent Godzilla movies came out, my husband and I were up watching it late one night and uh, my daughter came downstairs. She'd had a nightmare. And uh, she was, I think, maybe 13, 14. She came downstairs crying because she'd had a nightmare. So we said, well, why don't you watch Godzilla with us? <laughs> and so we started it over at like 10 o'clock at night. So we, we watched Godzilla and she felt better. And we were laughing because for a Godzilla movie, there was very little Godzilla. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Godzilla is a good monster. And then the new Godzilla Minus One is an absolutely phenomenal movie. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's doing, asking some great questions about what it means to be a man. That's Japan post World War II, and they're fighting Godzilla. And it, it, there's a lot of really great interplays about what it means to be human, and what it means to love, and what it means to um, be a good citizen, and a good family member, and a good human, and a good man. So it, it's a really good movie. That's a good Godzilla movie. Excellent. So yeah, Excellent. the Minotaur, the Minotaur, and Godzilla. I find I watch Godzilla movies on planes. I don't know. They always have them on the on the on the in-flight film thing, and I just I don't know. Like, I I rarely would just sit down and watch one, but when I'm sequestered on a plane for a couple hours, I guess it's yeah. so. I like I like alien movies. I don't like 
I don't like horror. Um, I like movie. I like movies about monsters. If it's something that's very clearly not human. It's not nearly as terrifying to me. Like mm. movies that are scary where it's humans hurting humans. I have a really hard time with like, I can't deal with it. Um, but movies about monsters, you know, war of the worlds, um, a quiet place, you know, movies, movies like that, where it's very clearly other monsters or ones that I can handle. So. Sure. sure. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, this conversation. This has been a blast and uh, we'll be sure to put your website in the show notes so that if anybody wants to uh, check out the classes, they can find those easily. So we really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. Listeners. Thanks for listening. And uh, in the meantime, keep reading. <laughs>